Welcome to the ninth episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots. This week, we are reviewing Dark Knights, Metal number one from DC Comics, and Baby Teeth number three from Aftershock. We also have beat reporter Brandon Griffin to talk about what books you need to read from Marvel's Resurrection. I'm your host, Matthew Sardo. I'm also the co-founder of MonkeysFightingRobots.com. Joining me in the conversation is my co-host, editor of the comic book section on Monkeys Fighting Robots, Anthony Composto. What's up, Internet? If you like the show, please subscribe on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, and Stitcher. Feedback is very welcome. Please comment, tweet at us, let us know how we're doing, and what books you want us to read and review. Dark Knight's Metal number one is out today. I'm hoping that this podcast comes out on Wednesday, but it's a big day. It's a big day. Dark Knight's Metal. We've been hearing about this thing for a long time now, haven't we, Anthony? Yeah, it's almost kind of like our whole podcast has been building to this, because when we launched it a few months ago, our first episode was with Scott Snyder, where we interviewed him and talked about Metal, and then we reviewed the casting a few weeks later. So it's almost like uh, this is is kind of a coming of age for our show. And I feel like Scott Snyder overhyped his book. What? He's like, he's right. Batman's riding a dinosaur. He was. No, he rode he was, a raptor, by the way. It was an ostrich. Way. Ostrich. Up top, up top. We are, we are going to spoil the shit out of this book. <laughs> we are talking spoilers. So run by Dark Knight's Metal. Read it or just read the spoilers that have already hit the internet. We're recording this on Monday. Uh, oh. Such bullshit. That got me so mad. That got me so mm-hmm. mad today. <laughs> I almost wrote like a whole article on like why this... No wonder, and we've talked about this before, no other industry spoils their material. Like, what, do, do should films spoil their uh, films in hopes of more ticket sales? It just boggles the mind. I mean, they do, right? Trailers sometimes will show way too much, and those movies usually end up being pretty bad when they're showing you all the best stuff in the trailer. Comedies do that, mostly. They show you but all if, the like, Sixth Sense spoiled the ending in the trailer, like, would that make you go see the movie? Or would no, they give you the, no. the, the turning the turn plot twist in in a book to sell more copies? No, they wouldn't. They would no, they would not. They You're would right. let for they would let the buzz of people being like, you need to read this book because the ending is amazing. Yeah. Again, though, we're talking when it does happen, it's bad movies. The the most recent example in my mind is Terminator Genesis, where they revealed in the trailer that John Connor was a Terminator or whatever. I didn't even see that. Pilot. He became. Ooh. The sentient became, being. Whatever, but they of, spoiled it. In they the did. Thing, and, that's, and that's a bad movie. Sixth Sense is a good movie. I can't imagine why they would ever do that. But I also don't want to make it sound like this is a bad comic. Because even though they spoiled it ahead of time, I still think it's a good comic. But you're right. Comic books do this way too much. DC and Marvel do this way too much. I don't know if this was a DC leak or... No, it was in the Washington Post. Oh, it was. It was. So it was like the proposal. It was like Batman's proposal. They Right. They, I gotcha. I was talking more of the bleeding cool thing that was going all around. Yeah, there's people that have talked about scripts and stuff like that beforehand, and that's that's fine. I mean, there's a, you can avoid those websites, but when it happens in the Washington Post, then like Facebook and Twitter, they pick it up. Like it starts becoming trending, and so like you hop on social media, and then like it's like, oh look, you know, what you yeah. call it showed up in a Batman book, and you're like, and those outlets like Washington Post or USA Today. They're not as courteous to the fans as, you know, the the nerd outlets like us are, where the USA Today or Washington Post, they'll put the spoiler right in the headline. Yeah. Just right away. They're like, Batman proposes in this week's issue of Batman. Do you want to talk about this book? I do want to talk about this book. We started to talk, touch on it a little bit. I, first of all, I, I liked The Forge. I thought the casting was okay. I think Metal Issue 1 blows both of the Prelude issues out of the water. 
I, I love seeing Scott Snyder and uh, Greg Capullo back together again. And I love that this book started like an action movie. Like you just you have this big action set piece that has nothing to do with the main plot just to get you hyped and get you excited. And then, you know, there's a beat and then it goes into the main plot. I, I thought that it was very, it was a very classic action story. I thought like this was like, mm, whatchamacallit, what was the casting, the forge? If there was a third version of whatever that was, I thought this was still a prequel. I was so mad. I was so mad reading this book. Why do you think it's a prequel though? I mean, it's because you don't story. find out. You don't find out anything. You don't find out. You don't find out anything new that you didn't already know. But they're finally getting into the story. No, they're not. They are though. They are. <laughs> the last the bit forged... gets into the story. The last. The last page is like, oh, the story is going to begin here. No, because the forge and the casting was still Batman. It was everything was isolated still. Batman was doing his investigations. You were reading Carter Hall's journal. Everything was still very confusing. This is where finally things are coming together, where Challenger's Mountain has appeared in Gotham City, and Ke- Kendra Saunders reveals herself to Batman, and finally the he has his hands on a pure sample of the nth metal, and the Justice League's involved, and everything's finally coming together. I'm not saying that there was a huge revelations in metal issue one but finally everything's come together we're pushing forward and we're starting to learn a little bit more we know a little bit more about where the challengers went we're seeing some of these characters we met red tornado the metal has activated something where dr fate and the metal men and plastic man are all sensing it morpheus sandman is in the mix now a lot happened in this issue okay that's that's good for you I love that you always do that. You, <laughs> whenever I get excited about something, you're just like, okay, well, yeah, good. Good for you. Good for you, Ant. I'm glad you're happy. I'm not. I'm bitter. You're sharing articles on Facebook today about how Gen Xers are so grumpy and cynical, and you're just like, good for everyone else. That but, was the best article ever because they were yeah. like, Gen Xers just have a little bar on the outskirts of the desert where they're just all hanging out. And I was like, I like that. I don't know what to do. <laughs> So um, they, should, they should have linked to our podcast at the bottom. Just like, just listen to this example of a millennial getting excited all the time and a Gen Xer shooting him down. <laughs> if you're going to say that Batman's going to ride a dinosaur, you can't put him on an ostrich. It was a raptor. That's all raptors are, are ancient ostriches. Okay. They Apparently. Do it again. <laughs> What's the best part? of Jurassic Park or Jurassic World or any of them? Is it the raptors or is it the T-Rex? Well, again, who knows where this will go? Maybe we'll get more dinosaurs later on. And there's even a variant cover with Batman on a T-Rex somewhere floating around. Then we're probably going to get a T-Rex later on down the road. I mean, that's where Kendra brought them. We're going to go back to the Justice League is still there, presumably, with her. That's their headquarters. So I'm sure we're going to go back and see more dinosaurs. I'm sure we're going to use the dinosaurs. I, and the raptors in Jurassic Park were pretty friggin' haunting. All right. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I was just like, okay, I'm waiting. I was like, because it opened up, and I was like, they just made Voltron. I was like, son of a bitch. I was like, it's, I was like this is cute. This is entertaining. And I was like, oh. This has nothing to do with the book at all. And I was no, like, it was like an action movie. Right. This was a big action sequence that had nothing to do with the plot. And 
you can't tease because they teased in, in the last book. The last book was Forge. They teased all the Batmen. Casting. It was casting. Casting. You can't tease the Batman and then not even show him at all in the first issue. Like that. I was like, wait a second. Like it should have the spoiler that should have happened at the beginning. Like it, the first couple pages should have happened right away. And then at the end of one, it should have been the villains. Like, because then you would have had, like, you introduced a new, like, I don't know, hero-esque person into the world. I don't even know if it's a hero or a villain. And then, you know, you show all the villains at the end, and they're like, oh, my God. Because this is six issues long. You got to, like, hit those notes really quickly. And you got to, like, catalyst that big, huge climax by issue four and build it up. But you just wait. I feel like they just wasted an issue building up the climax. We do get a glimpse of the Dark Knights. Not a good one. It was very similar to the tease we got. It was just another tease of their silhouettes in a shadow. So I get that it's not what you were looking for. And there's six of them or whatever they are. It should have at least got one over there. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's like I said, it's a six issue story. A, we're going to get, there's a lot of tie ins and spin offs as well, which is. Do I have to, do I have of, to read all those? I don't know there, but some of the spinoffs I was gonna say are solely focused on those Dark Knights. Like we're gonna get spinoff comics that are about these, um, you know, the Devastator. I'm, I'm trying to look at the list, the checklist of all the different books that are coming out. We got the Dawnbreaker, the Murder Machine, the Drowned, the Merciless. We're getting all these little one-shot spinoffs. Yeah, no. In the first issue, Dark Knights Metal, there's a cover. Andy Kubert's cover is Batman on a T-Rex. We're and, back to the and T-Rex. And then you open it up, and he's riding an ostrich. Well, maybe we'll get a T-Rex later. It was on They're the not... cover of issue one. Well, that's just poor marketing then. I'll grant you that. I don't know. And maybe like, I, was super, I was super excited at the beginning of this book when it's like, oh, my God, we're in a battle right away. We're battling, battling, battling. And I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with what, the, what we're doing. I was like, ah, oh, this is what he was talking about, just giving us a battle and action and, and the story right away. And I was like, oh, no, it's not. This... I like how we had a panel of Batman riding a raptor. I'm not calling it an ostrich. Uh, 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 Batman riding a dinosaur, period. And your reaction is, well, the dinosaur wasn't big enough. Yeah. Uh, When you break down this issue, I mean, you got, like you said Voltron, I would call it a Zord from Power Rangers. You got the Justice League forming a Zord. You have Batman riding a raptor. You get the Sandman introduced. You get a glimpse of Dr. Fate, Plastic Man, the Metal Men are teased. When you break it down item by item, there's a lot jammed into this book. And you're just like, wasn't big enough. No. No T-Rex. No, because Snyder hyped it up. There's no rock and roll in this. Where's the rock and roll? There's a, they were, I just said they were riding it. They were a Zord. They, they were a giant mechanized creature. But that had yeah. nothing to do with the story. Okay, break it down like an action movie. Think about when this reads as a trade. When this is when all the six issues are out and collected and you give to someone. Think of it as an action movie. You get the big action sequence in the beginning to just hook you and get you invested. Then, as in all of the action movies and stories happen, it slows down. It brings you into the real story. You get your exposition. You get your first act. And then it builds and it gets bigger and there's a big climax. When this reads as a trade, I'm sure it's going to be phenomenal as long as the story holds up. Okay, but we're reading it as a singular issue. We're reviewing it as a singular issue. As an issue one, yes. And what an issue one is supposed to do is introduce you to a story, give you a setup, hook you, and I think. But Metal Snyder promised something else. 
Snyder promised us something bigger, grander, some, you know, big rock and roll escapade, Frank Franzetta, like heavy metal type rock and roll craziness with flaming guitars. And like, I was seeing my head, I was seeing the Mad Max guitarist with flames coming out of his guitar and like just crazy off the wall shit. And like, that didn't happen to this issue. I think he was promising that that was going to be what metal was as a whole. And I think that you maybe put all of those feelings and expectations into the first issue, whereas I think Snyder and Capullo were pitching metal as a whole. I do think that there was a lot of awesomeness in this first issue, and I don't want to undersell it. I thought I, I personally thought that there was good action. It did hook me. I thought that they gave me a lot more information to get me invested. There was some awesome little teases of what's over there. The whole it's chasing us run painted in red across the wall of the ship was haunting. You know, it, it got me hooked. I think that you are just you were putting what Snyder was trying to describe for the series as a whole and just hanging all your hopes on. Well, I thought he was going to blow the doors off of issue one and just bam, just be as creative as possible and you know, have whatever these bad guys then come in and just take over the universe and then, like, the heroes are just blown out of the water and then they have to pick up the pieces and you're left with your jaw just dropped, like, oh, my God, what the hell are they going to do? They just, like, you know. Okay. Well, first of all, like I said, we, you know, you have that big cliffhanger at the end of issue one. They introduce Morpheus the Sandman, which for a lot of people that is a jaw-dropping cliffhanger moment. But we haven't played this game in a while. We haven't played how Matt fixes the story in a while. So what would what would have blown you away? What would have made your jaw drop in this comic? Well, something of weight. Some like I I feel like this book was one of the the preludes to the story. Like I don't like the story starts when Dream shows up. So would you have wanted the Dark Knights? Would that have been your? I would have wanted moment? them to come crashing through the doors and and just blow the place up and just obliterate everybody right away like i don't know what it would have been of like but did you feel like we got enough information in the preludes to set that up because even at the end of the casting i felt like we needed more no but if the mystery but if the mystery continues and you don't solve the mystery until issue five or six that's fine too but you gotta balance out a certain amount of mystery and a certain amount of action so if you solve the mystery before the books like right now the mystery is kind of like oh this is what's going on you know, that was the mystery, but the mystery is like, if that continued and you're like picking the pieces up and, and having it go while you're also running for your lives and you're trying to save people from these like crazy, you know, dark nights in this black universe, like that's how it should go. Like the mystery shouldn't come first and then the action. Like, I feel like it should go hand in hand. I think the mystery is still open too, for the record. I, I think that there's a still a long way. And I love Again, this is a Batman detective story, and I, I I said it when we reviewed the casting and the Forge. I love seeing Batman at a microscope doing real detective work. I love that we're getting a big metal action event that's still a mystery at its core. I, I, I see what you're saying. I do, just because you're – I mean, I didn't. That wasn't how I felt, so that wasn't in my mindset. But having you explain it to me, I can see where you're coming from, and I completely respect your opinion. Yeah, because there's still five life forms you know, trapped in that little – sphere and i was like let them out like i was like oh if they let them out then like all chaos is ready to go you know like when it's when with the writing on the things that it's chasing us run like yes. there should have been something like i felt like that should have opened up something more like there should have just been more and i felt like he hinged everything on 
Neil Gaiman's character and that just being like a, a cute niche thing to do. Like, oh my God, it's the guy from Vertigo. Whoa, mind blown. <laughs> like, no. I mean, like, we've been through this stuff before. You know, we with Brightest Day, Swamp Thing was like the white ring guy. Like, we've had right. these like big moments where somebody else has come from a different universe. Like, that's cute. But like, you got yeah, they're like, doing it right now with Watchmen and, and Rebirth. So. Right. I mean, like, I was hoping that he was just going to blow the doors open. And, and and this is this is probably my critique of, like, Jeff Johns writing to, to Snyder's writing, where Snyder's probably building it up, and I feel like Jeff tries to punch you in the face with it right away. And I'll have to go back, and I have, I have a whole bunch of trades of all the Green Lantern runs, but all those big crossovers that he does i think that that first issue he kind of like just throws it at you and just punches you in the face with it and it's like you're left stunned you're like okay let's read the rest of it now and figure out what's going on and this one i was like okay where's the where where's all this gusto like because to see them that excited about it and be like this is what we're gonna do it's gonna be great rock and roll woo! and i was like okay you're gonna give me some crazy action it's gonna be awesome like you're gonna give me and they still could and like you said, it could be the whole thing they were talking about, just not the first issue. But like, I like getting since it's only six issues. Like, this reminds me of like a Bendis Marvel crossover event where he's just like, "Hey, we're going to talk for a little bit in the first issue, and then we'll kind of reveal stuff later on." And I'm just like, "No, don't waste my time. Like, this is a this is a main event. Give me the main event." Yeah. I do because you mentioned Jeff Johns, and I was trying to think. Well, maybe it's just Snyder's style, and and a Court of Owls. I think kind of started the first issue was a little bit slower. But then I was thinking All Star Batman, where the first issue of All Star Batman started real big and real hardcore, and it was a real rock show. So I still I still enjoyed it. I I actually do like this just this first issue of Metal. I think I like it more than how I've been feeling about All Star Batman, which I've been enjoying. I've been enjoying Snyder's All-Star Batman, but this feels more pure and connected to his previous Batman run with Greg Capullo. And maybe that's just because Capullo's back on it with him, which I love. If we want to transition into the art a little bit, I, I'm so glad to see Greg Capullo back on Batman. I think he is one of the best Batman artists ever, probably. He's one of my favorite Batman artists for sure. I love the way he draws Batman as well as most of the other Justice League members. I think he just has a really good grasp on this world, along with his inker, Jonathan Glapion, and uh, colorist, FCO Placencia. I, I think that their their Batman work is really is, is top-notch. And inks, when it's coming to Batman, inks are so crucial because it's such a dark world of shadows. I like the artwork. I thought it was interesting. I mean, I kept every time I look at the Justice League now, I'm comparing it towards the movie that's going to come out later on this year, and I'm like looking at how everybody looks and... Aquaman's always interesting. I love the joke about the hook right in the beginning. That was funny. Green Lantern, Hal, Hal Jordan, it's kind of a little wonky for me. But I think everybody else, I, I just like to see how the effects of the movie play in on the artwork. Where, like, yeah. Flash. You is, see it in Aquaman. You see it in Aquaman. If you look at Flash, Flash has got some stuff going on that's more of the new Justice League than the way. I hope they stay away from that. I hate his costume in the movie. But it was, I mean, it was interesting. I mean, Capullo's artwork and what he does is, is pretty solid. I, you know, as a person that kind of stopped reading DC at the New 52, I'm still a little lost because I'm like, okay, 
This is Hawkgirl and Hawkman. Everybody knows who this is. Like Red Tornado. How come nobody knows who the Red Tornado is? So it's, and they're it, retconning things from New Fifty Two. Right. Because Hawkman was in New Fifty Two, as we talked about when we reviewed the casting. Like Hawkman was in Jeff Johns' JLA run, and now they're writing it as if he was was never around. He's been disappeared for however long with the Challengers. So they're they're, they're doing some pretty major retcons right here. Yeah, so I'm still a little confused on what is going on with these things, and that's kind of probably a little bit like why it's a little wonky for me as well. But no, Greg Capullo drawing Batman in the Batcave with Alfred behind him is an amazing, amazing visual. And I love that. He draws action so well. He draws fight scenes really well. Just They're they're fluid and and just panel to panel. It just, oh. All right, so what are you you giving this book? Uh, I'm going to give it a 4.5. Okay. You're not as gracious as I thought you were going to be. I thought I was going to go super high. Well, you're going to be like a 4.792.56. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, no, I'll go 4.5 because it, it delivered everything I wanted it to be. It, it had some action in it. It gave me a lot more with the story. The art was great. There were hooks. There was enough to keep me interested. I think a 4.5 is a pretty, I mean, if I was going to push it, I would say 4.6, but I think that it was a, a very solid first issue. Oh man, this is, we're going to keep going with this till February. We're not going to get the answer out of this. Ah, it's going to bother me. It's going to bother me so much. What doesn't bother you? No, it's, huh, it's one of those things. I mean, we're in this binging world now and, and I can't believe I'm I'm saying this, but like, I'm just hoping it doesn't get delayed. I'm hoping that everything stays on schedule. I'm just hoping that it comes out like on a regular basis and we're good to go. That's that's all I really worry about. So yeah, that August, is September, October. It's not taking a month off, is it? Please say it's not taking a month off. Yes, it is. It's taking it's taking wait, October? Looking at the thing right. Okay, so October, November. No, it's taking November off. That's gonna bother see, that's it. <laughs> but look at everything you're getting in November. You're getting tie-ins. You're getting Batman the Devastator and Justice League and Batman Lost, Batman the Man Who Laughs. You're getting two Justice League issues in November, actually. Yeah. I'm happy yeah, for so you. maybe those are maybe I'm those are essential. Maybe I'm those will maybe those will fill your fill your need. They just gotta keep this train rolling. I, I don't understand the take it a month off thing. It's just to draw it out and this is where I start bother, bothering me on events, and I'm not gonna say that. But I'm gonna give this a solid four. A solid four out of five robots. It's a it's a s- solid start. It didn't blow me away. I thought the the ending was interesting, but I don't know if the hipster kids want to be in an action heavy metal book like metal. So the Neil Gaiman hipster kids are gonna be like, ah, oh, they're ruining my character. I don't know. I've seen a very positive response so far, but the internet so i'm sure there's there's, some, there's some trolls whiny, somewhere there's i'm trolls sure there's somewhere. some whiny trolls out there already complaining but it's exciting i'm interested to see there's big monsters out there and i can't wait to see the big monsters and just get them for me scott give me the monsters as quickly as possible hopefully we get a t-rex in issue two okay true believers on the second half of the show we are going to talk about baby teeth from aftershock baby teeth number three but this brought on a bigger concept of what is creative and what is just throwing shit at the wall. So we're going to bring on our beat reporter, Brandon Griffin, on the show, the big show, 
to kind of talk to us about creativity. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hey, fellas. Thanks for having me. Anthony, can you give us the rundown on Baby Teeth? Yeah, Baby Teeth is a comic hit from Aftershock. It's written by Donnie Cates with art by Gary Brown. It's the story of a young teenager, 16 years old, uh, got pregnant, got knocked up, very Juno-esque, and uh, she gave birth to a baby, just a normal, normal little young baby. Oh, no, wait, it, it's the Antichrist. I'm sorry. She gave birth to the Antichrist. And now crazy, crazy absurdity things are happening with organizations that want the baby and demon raccoons. And it's, it's real. See, you got to see it to believe it kind of stuff. And the writer is? As I said, Donnie Cates. Okay, but you earlier said that this guy is on fire. Or did Brandon, one of you guys said this guy's on fire. And yeah, you that said that me. this book yeah, is but firing. Well, we, yeah, we were in agreement that Donnie Cates has been on fire between God Country, this, and Redneck. Redneck, I mean, now he's he just got pegged by Marvel. He's going to be doing Doctor Strange and Thanos. I mean... And then I saw an Image Plus for this month. They just previewed something called a Tomahawk that he's writing, too. Yeah, I think that's an older series. I think that's actually out and available if you look for it. I think they might just be repackaging it and, and re redoing it. Oh, okay. And this is the first time that I've read a book by Donnie. And I read the first three issues, and I was like, okay, this is an interesting concept. But it's a really slow burn. The artwork is really amazing, but I kept, like getting to it and going to each last page and I'm like okay why would I read the next issue and, and breaking it down and it really hasn't given me anything yet to be like oh my god this is amazing and I need to like read every issue of it and I started breaking down the comic book after that where I was like okay and you just gave me the fact that the, the marquee term the book is Juno with demon baby and you know crazy demon raccoons and I'm like okay where is the line of creativity and absurdity and how, how do you know when you crossed it and that's the conversation so Mary's Juno baby right with demon raccoons I, I really don't think that we can overstate <laughs> the demon raccoons you can't talk about baby teeth without demon raccoons and I'm I, not even talking about the crazy assassin girl yet either that sings REM not even talking about no. that yet either or her crazy sister, or as you said off air, her Captain America father. There's, there's a lot of elements, a lot of elements going on in this book. So yeah, so we'll review. We're going to review the book briefly, but we're going to use it as a, a segue into this larger theme over what is creativity in comics and uh, when does it cross the line? I think that's what you're trying to accomplish. Right? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what's going on because this is something that's happening in a. You can see a lot of it on TV as well. And, and uh, my first thing I think about is like Breaking Bad where they like, okay, we have a high school teacher who's dying of cancer or they're going to sell meth. And it was like, okay, we're going to flip the script and, and what is good is good is bad and what is white is black. And, and, and then we're going to throw in some wild cards in there. And I also, I just watched the Ozarks, which I really enjoyed. And that's like a crazy flip of the script of what's going on as well of we're just like, hey, let's throw a whole bunch of, random ingredients into the pot and just see what kind of unfolds out of there. You and I, we've talked before and we talked last week with Mr. Miracle about how much I enjoy books that take concepts that are so familiar and almost cliched and just flipping them on their head. Last week we had Mr. Miracle, which is a book about the new gods, which are bright and Kirby and energetic and kinetic and making it this dark introspective tale about life with suicide attempts in it and whatnot. Like I think you need to flip the script sometimes to really get people's attention and keep people interested so people don't get bored. We've seen, we just referenced it, we've seen Juno, we've seen Rosemary's Baby, we've seen The Omen. You, got, you do something different to catch people's eye. 
Well, it's also too that there's so many different publishers and comic book series now that to to find something that sticks with an audience at this point, you know, the the well of ideas is kind of drier than it's ever been before. So you're starting to see like, oh, it's a cowboy, but he's a vampire, or it's a it's a space firefighter. Like you're just gonna at this point, you're just gonna get weird combinations of of you know classic tropes or environments and throwing like a humanistic element into them, and sometimes they stick and sometimes they don't. Yeah, exactly. And you just brought up a great example with the Cowboy Redneck, another Donny Cates book. He seems to do this over and over again. There are so many vampire comics out there currently and just through time. There, you could go, you can be bored with vampire comics easily. So you throw something different in there. You give them a family, you make them cowboys, and 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 you you throw enough shit against the wall and you see what sticks. And you know why? Because they already did Lost Boys, so you can't make Lost Boys any better. So you make them rednecks. I'm so confused on this because I part of me is like, okay, there's a person like Dan Slott who likes to flip things on the head. He's doing it in major continuity, so he has a lot of baggage that he has to deal with. And some people don't like what Dan Slott does. Some people do. Some people are great. Uh, you but you have the independent publishers where people are just trying to be as creative as possible. And I'm like, okay, where is where is that over creative line? I'm trying to think, think of the the, line, I'm trying to think of the balance and how it how it plays out like like with movies. I'm trying to find a comparison between movies, TV, and comic books because comic books have an unlimited budget, so you can be as creative as you want. And yeah. but I'm like, okay, what is a creative? What is a non-creative? Like, what is a Michael Bay film that makes a shit ton of money but is horrible, but everybody still eats it up? Like, what is that comparison in comic books? Personally, I know Brandon would disagree, but I would probably say Slot's Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, I'd probably say that because it makes a shit ton of money. I think the line, when you're dealing with independent comics and creator-owned comics, there's no line because it's your property to do what you got to do. When you are dealing with characters that have a long history and continuity and whatnot, the line is when you disrespect that history. Mr. Miracle, again, Kirby... Very, you know, Tom King and Mitch Garrods are doing something very different, but they are not disrespecting Kirby's heritage. They're not, not disrespecting, yet. Not yet. Well, we got to see. But first <laughs> issue didn't. It took it a completely different direction, but it didn't crap on Kirby. Well, you have someone like Dan Slott that some of us, two thirds of the people on this podcast right now, might argue, <laughs> dude, does disrespect the history. So, but when you're dealing with independent comics like, like Baby Teeth or Saga or Sex Criminals. I don't think there's a line. I'm sure it could get to a point where you might turn a lot of people off where they say, no, you went too far. But there will still be some people that will enjoy it and they'll keep reading. And at that point, that that's all the that's creators right, yeah. care about. Yeah, but our job is to critique these books. And I'm trying to go through like my history of comic books because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out. That is just mm-hmm. random of random. And I never actually really read any of the comic books. I played the video game i but i love teenage mutant ninja turtles never really read the comic books the video game was the hardest video game ever to play the first one uh and i remember the cartoon coming out my little brother had all the toys and i remember being this amazing concept and went to the movies and it was great but i'm okay that was an absurd concept but it kind of worked another perfect example of taking a familiar concept and and spinning it because that's just daredevil they just took daredevil and made him turtles i think they so. did a little bit more than just make daredevil turtles no, they have very much said that that I know. It's based yeah, on Daredevil. No, like, the opening, the, the origin you know. is Daredevil. What were you gonna say, Brandon? 
Yeah, it's like well documented, Kevin Easton. There's all those Easter eggs in the first issue of Turtles too, where it's all basically Daredevil's origin story with you know the hand, the foot, and all those comparisons. But then he just continued to go with it. Yeah, no, that's what I was gonna say. That's why I was saying it's a little bit more than just a Daredevil ripoff. But I, I was there when he said that, or in, in seen videos where he said it. So I completely agree that they said they ripped off Daredevil because they even try to make it look like a Frank Miller esque in the first couple issues with the artwork and stuff like that. So I, I get that. And it's great, and it's classic, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just, you know. But then, there, then they went, then I remember there being like a Captain Carrot. And like Captain Carrot wasn't popular, so does it become absurd when people stop buying the book? I feel like that's kind of arbitrary. Well, it's all, basically, it all comes down to, to the audience in the end. If you can put out literally like a tree shitting in a bucket, but it has a family... And if people buy it, then they'll they'll keep making that tree shitting into a bucket. But does that make the bucket good? Not necessarily. There are plenty of things like there are plenty of things that aren't good that people love that made a lot of money, like Batman versus Superman or Suicide Squad. Oh man, EJ's ears are gonna be burning right now. So there's shows like Big Bang Theory because we were talking about buckets of shit selling. And they're the most popular TV shows, but does that necessarily make them good shows? And that's what I'm trying to come down to with this conversation about comic books is like, where do, where does that like ultra creativity slash throw shit at the wall slash absurdity kick in? And, and where's that line so that we can kind of like judge comic books? Well, I think it's also like my problem that I always have with people that try to, and sorry, I'm not coming after ej or anything but for people that continuously try to make a case for movies that aren't critically acclaimed but you know they do have a following like bvs and like suicide squad it's okay to like things that aren't great like i the band guar i love guar they're a horrible band but i love them i love the movie joe dirt it's not a masterpiece but i love that movie it's okay to like things that aren't great not everything you like has to be a 10 out of 10 yeah i think we live in a very post rotten tomatoes world right now where just and not just movies but they said comics tv everything where if anything has just even a few flaws people flip out i mean i'm not old by any means i'm 25 years old but even i you know you think about some of the shows and movies that i remember watching and loving when i was a kid like ace ventura you know where you're throwing out jerder i'll throw out ace ventura which isn't high art or anything but i loved it but i don't remember people flipping out on me because i enjoyed Ace Ventura, as much as people will flip out on you nowadays, like I feel like we, the media-consuming people of the world, have uh, have become increasingly snotty in recent years. Everybody's a critic has never been more literal than today. And that's why I'm trying to figure out where the standards are. And, and number one, Ace Ventura is a classic, Anthony. <laughs> that... Thank you. I agree. Thank you. Okay, uh, so you don't have to defend... Your love of Ace Ventura. Joe Dirt, now that is a little tough to be like, hey, look, cause I'm, look at my Joe Dirt tattoo. Like, that's, you know, <laughs> I, I, I jumped out on a limb on that one. For me, I defended the, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. And when the Godzilla movie came out in the 90s, it was shit. But I had to defend it because I was like, no, nah, it's the best fucking movie ever. Because, like, I loved Godzilla and everybody was trashing it. And so I was like, oh, my God, just, you know, leave me alone, man. It's a giant iguana, but it's my giant iguana. Uh, so well, I understand at- when everybody tells you that you what you love is shit. So there's a defense. I I get that defense on like the the DC universe side because that's really got to suck when like 
your favorite characters suck, and then everybody else tells you you suck, and then you just have to defend. Well, the greatest it. example of it too is like the Star Wars prequels. There's no one defending those movies as pieces of art anymore, or ever were really. But like, I disagree. I disagree. No, I'm not defending the prequels, but there are prequel there sympathizers. Are there are people. There are prequel sympathizers that are coming of age. My generation. We were the prequel generation. They're coming of age. They're defending them. There are all the ring theories and the people comparing them and, and dissecting them. And I think that the prequels are are on the up and up. Hayden Christensen was at Star Wars Celebration this past year, and he was celebrated. People liked having him there, and they were happy about it. I, I do think that the prequels are coming around in people's eyes. Not defending well, them. We still, I'll hold my reservation. And there's also I'll people out there that. that think the world is flat. <laughs> okay, but you know this. This is a good. This is this is another point based on what you were saying earlier. Is that I think a lot of the times with this stuff, times time time tells more than anything else. Again, let's get off the prequels because I don't want to sound like I'm defending <laughs> the prequels here. I'm just talking. Listen, if and, Brandon and, is a Flyers fan, you're a prequel defender. Oh my god! <laughs> Listen, well, I, I, I saw I saw the, the Phantom Menace. I was gonna say that the prequels are not great movies, but like I wholeheartedly love all three of them because they're still Star Wars at the end of the day, and nine times out of ten, I'd rather watch a shitty Star Wars movie than whatever's on TBS. No, they're poorly. written. They're on TBS all the time. <laughs> they're, they're 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 poorly written and they're poorly acted, but they are. If you watch like documentaries and breakdowns about them. There is good art behind them. It was just executed horribly, horribly wrong. If you read up on the ring theory and watch, um, there's a, a documentary, the, the prequel Strike Back. It, there were some really great concepts that were just executed horribly wrong. Anyway, as I was saying, back to comic books. Time, time tells more than anything on all of these because something could be, it could sell poorly. It, it could make no money. It could be canceled after a few issues, but it'll develop a cult following. It might not be. 10 years or more until it's recognized as, as as a classic. Again, we're just, let's go back to Mr. Miracle. Jack Kirby's original fourth world stuff was canceled after like 11 issues or something, but now it's like hailed and the new gods are the new gods and dark sides, dark seed, excuse me, is, is in no dark side is going to be in the justice league movie. No, they, they, just, they just, they just wrote him out and they reshot that. So he's, He's not in it anymore. Oh, my whole it just went to hell. Never mind. I'm off. And Brandon called me out on Josh that. Josh Whedon just gave you the... Josh, yeah, Josh Whedon just gave you He called me out on that. But back in the day, I like there was Star Wars and there was the Dark Side. And then like there was a Justice League cartoon with, with Dark Side as well. And I was like, no, 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 no. They're stealing from I was like, this guy is... The way it smells, like, this is Dark Seed. And I just... Like a six-year-old kid, I was like, that guy's Dark Seed. And it still comes out. Well, sometimes... With comics, you can get away with that because you read it. So everyone's reading. Like when Doctor Strange came out, that was the first time I had hear, heard words like Vishanti and Agamotto and Dormammu and stuff actually spoken by human beings. So with comics, you can get away with it. But with Dark Side specifically, especially how often you reference Justice League Unlimited, <laughs> there's no excuse. No, because I established it when I was younger, and I was just like, no, nah, no, nah, <laughs> I made his own name. And that was, like, I used to play, you know, because I'm older than you guys, and I, wa I played NHL whatever they were, you know, as soon as they came out. And I remember the first time I heard the players that I loved in the game for the New Jersey Devils and then heard their real names. Because I'm not French-Canadian. I'm a kid from New York. And I was like, oh, <laughs> You know, Stephen Richard. And I was like, oh, Richet. Like, it was just like, I named them whole different names because 
you know, you're trying to be an upstate New York kid playing NHL hockey, and then all these French Canadian names go onto your team. Uh, so that's the weird tangent of names and why we have we Dark have gone off on so many seed. weird tangents. It, 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 I just want to say one thing that all three of us can agree on because I'm pretty sure it was all all three teams. Darius Kasparitis. This is a piece that of shit. A, that was a, an eye opener. <laughs> <laughs> Comic show, gentlemen. Comic show. We got to get back to the comic books. <laughs> so many tangents on this episode. So baby teeth, baby teeth. Darian Casparitis has comics. like no teeth after hockey. Like he's lost all his teeth. Like it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But I'm trying to like we're established. We're nine episodes into this this podcast, and we need to start establishing why we're giving out these grades and why we're critiquing things a certain way. And I think yeah. baby teeth is a good example of like, okay, one person could see this as just being absurd. One person could see this as like, oh, this is a well-crafted narrative of, I don't know. I'm the one who thinks it's absurd. So I need somebody else to speak yeah. for themselves. Okay. So me, when, when I'm picking, when I'm reading books and when I'm trying to pick the books that we should talk about every week on this show, I'm looking for things that break the mold. And not just for the show, just books that I keep in my pull list every week as well. Things that break the mode. If I'm reading something and I said, oh, this is, even if this is good, but it's something that I've seen before 120 times, it, it's going to fall off my list eventually. I, I, I look for things that push that line. That And I don't know where the line is. No one knows where the line is. But I, I look for the originality factor. I look for things that are pushing boundaries, that are changing things up, that are trying new things. Even if it's just taking concepts that feel familiar, like a teenage pregnancy and the Antichrist, and just blending them together in new ways. Sometimes people go too far. Absolutely agree. But I would rather that someone tries something different and tries to push boundaries than just resetting and feeling safe and doing something that we've seen before. Even if that might sell. Because me, I, I, I don't care if something is, is, is best-selling. I want a good story in the end, even if it, even if it only lasts 11 issues and then gets canceled. But just breaking the mold, does that make it good? No, not necessarily, but it does give it, it – it's its own That's what gets, That what gets your attention, though. Yeah, that's its own factor. Like The originality factor is its own thing. Then you can, with comics you can go into, is the art up to par? How's the dialogue? How's the pacing? But getting me in the door – is, is probably like an originality factor. And it, and it holds a lot of weight with me when I'm reading a book. If I'm reading a book and maybe the art isn't an A+, an a plus, and maybe the dialogue is a little stilted and maybe you know it's a little choppy, but I, I can respect the story enough and respect what the creators are doing to maybe stick with it and maybe even give it an extra issue or two to see if it gets itself on track. Brandon? Well, yeah, as it comes to whether or not something abstracts is going to break the mold or, or grab me really like I think especially with the number one issue its job is to pull you in by either its concept its story or its art and then its job from the cover to cover is to make you want to purchase the next issue and being an abstract book or just an off-color book it doesn't necessarily grant you an audience of people that in, even enjoy abstract stuff. I mean, look at the the top selling book outside of Marvel and DC is what Walking Dead, and that's because of the TV show. And it was right it was a good seller saga. before the TV show. The TV show just helped it out. 
Well, yeah, that's what led to the TV show. But the reason that it can keep up and be in top ten every month that it has an issue is because of the longevity and the the fact that it's not just the comic book audience anymore that is subscribing to it. But Sagas is widely considered to be a in a bit of an abstract book, but also massively successful. But even that, uh, it's still not finding as big an audience as uh, as Tom King's Batman or even getting into the top 10 of sales. It, but so it, it does it really get into the top 10 of sales, though. Saga does hit top 10, maybe not every single month, but it does. Even that it's in that, even if Batman's at number one and Saga's at number 10 or 11, just that it's in that same realm as a character with the weight of Batman is commendable. Yeah, and that's when it's it's pretty much capturing lightning in a bottle with something like that, where you do get to put out something that is both artistically abstract and an interesting story that's going to have political commentary and actually say something and have that family value element to it, but that it finds a, a grand audience. And it's, what is it on now, 44 issues, 45 issues, and to last that long, too? I think, you just touched on it a little bit, I think one of the keys is keeping things familiar and relatable. Books like Batman and Spider-Man, they sell so well, even if they're not necessarily good stories or well-written or, or, or critically well-received, they're familiar characters. We, we know Batman, we know Spider-Man, we know Superman, and that, that's a large portion of the sales. I think we could all agree on that. I think all these other abstract, quote-unquote, books that we've been talking about, Saga, Baby Teeth, other Donny Cates books like God Country and Redneck, I think if you are going to go big and go abstract and go weird and toe that line and push boundaries, I think what you need to do to keep people is try to keep things grounded and relatable. All these books we've mentioned, Saga, Baby Teeth, Redneck, none of them are based in reality. Aliens, vampires, demon raccoons. But the, but we can all identify with having a sibling that's always got our back when, 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 we get, when we're down and out. You know, parents can relate to Saga, so I, I think I think that's also a, a huge factor to the success of these, as Matt is calling them, abstract books. Well, it's also got to be the trifecta too. You've got to, with the comic book specifically, you've got to have artwork that's interesting in some sort of way, in style or layout, and you've got to have a script and dialogue and story that's going to be interesting and. You know, because, like, look at Sacred Creatures. I read number one because the art looked interesting. I and I didn't read issue two because the story left me with nothing. So I didn't come back to it. But if you can grab an audience with both, that's where the reward is. If you can if you can give a, an audience something abstract and both visual and story and, then, and impress them, then you're, you're basically going to grab someone for however long your run's going to be. All right, so let's... I, don't know. I just looked up some numbers because I wanted to kind of figure out what was going on. I have June's numbers. Saga was ranked number 40th, and he sold 43,000 copies for issue 44. Walking Dead is at the ten, top 10. At 10, it sold 82,000, almost 83,000, and Batman sells like 116. And in June, Peter Parker, Spectacular Spider-Man, sold 224,000 copies. So that's a little perspective on what's going on. And then after that, I... It'd be tough to tell you. Saga was at 40, and it's Marvel and DC for a long time, and then Reborn kicks in at 29,000 at like 80th. So it's I mean, it, it's a weird. It, we're it, this is we're talking 
to a niche audience of a niche audience kind of thing. Because comic books, to, to begin with, is a niche audience. And then mm-hmm. to talk about the guys that are reading the independent books is even a more niche audience of that. Walking Dead is one of the few books that I've stuck with even since I fell out of comic books and got back into comic books. I always made sure I had a pull of Walking Dead. So my run is continuous. But one of the things that drew me to Walking Dead, and this could be where we flip the script, is that it wasn't a, the zombies were the setting, but it was all about the human dynamic of what was going on. And, and that's kind of what I, the reoccurring theme that I'm hearing from the different books that, that we love and that we like is the is that human dynamic, whether it be family, siblings, survive. I, I love the concept of somebody, how people react in a survival mode. Like, I love looking into Kirkman's brain and being like, okay, this is what I would think I would do, or this or that, blah, blah. Like, I love that kind of stuff, and I, I, I'm a student of reading that kind of genre. But, yeah, like I, like I said, the, the, the reoccurring theme is that humanity aspect to the books. Yeah, people want concepts and plots that push the boundaries but they want themes that they can relate to i think as far as the sales numbers go i do just want to say that i feel like books like saga walking dead even independent books sell a lot better and read a lot better in trade format so i don't think yeah, that's a whole other factor too. yeah not, not not all those numbers i think might be completely and totally accurate i think superhero comics will always sell well on a month-to-month basis there are a lot of image and independent books that really need to be read as a whole. And I think a lot of people wait. I myself wait for saga trades to come out. I don't read it on a month by month basis. Well, that's why I, I think baby teeth is a prime example. Cause it's a slow burn comic book. Not a lot has happened in the first three issues. And I'm still sitting there like waiting, like, okay, what is that thing that's going to hook me? Cause like there are, there, there's hints and there's, there's stories crafted well, where there's like a whole bunch of flashbacks and, and the mother's really naive, and she's very innocent about how she talks about her her demon child, which is quirky, but is it going to make me keep wanting to spend money month after month after month? Well, did issue one make you want to read issue two when you were finished it? No, issue one didn't make me want to read it. Issue two made me want to read, because that's where actually the baby teeth throw up, show up at the end, last page. So you're yeah. like, oh, this is actually... Cause it starts off where you're like, okay, is this a demon child? Because I never, when, when Anthony sends me books, I never like pre-read any descriptions because I just want to go in kind of fresh. So I'm sure if they were selling it like, oh, this is a demon child, I'd be like, oh, okay, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I like just reading it fresh off of just, you know, like an editor would read it when you're, when you're pitching a book to a, to a company. Like I want to read it just like they would. And, you know, there was, it kind of sounded like, the daughter that had the kid was a little crazy and a little cuckoo the way things were going. But then issue two, like there's a lot, there's a big splash page at the end where it's like, Oh, it's a baby with teeth and blood. And you're like, Oh, things are going to go and crazy, crazy town. So that issue made me want to read issue three, but still issue three happened. And then it was still kind of like slow. So that's where I'm like, okay, maybe the trade will read better. See, I, I think the trade will, will read great. And then I think it'll, once the first arc is complete, It'll flow well. Me, from my perspective, I, I wouldn't. I see what you're saying as far as not a lot has happened plot-wise, and I'll agree with you there. I do still think that they're quick reads. I think they're very well-paced. I think that the character development has kept me involved. It's got me really caring about um, the teenage mother and her sister. And I, I think the cliffhangers have really been keeping me back issue after issue as well. So I, I see what you're saying as far as plot-wise, but I 
I still think that it, it's got a lot to offer. I, again, yeah, I'm not I'm just looking at it now, and it looks. I am gonna read this book based on the art alone, and well, it's anything about like demon babies and stuff. You got me. You got me at least intrigued, and the art is gonna hook me, or at least get me through the door. No, I definitely so wanted I to think... say stuff about Gary Brown. Gary Brown's artwork is is phenomenal through the whole book. I that definitely had me on it, and I will let Brandon continue. Well, yeah, the art is that's what that's basically. I haven't read it. I'm looking at it now, and the art is gonna get me to go back and read all three of these issues, and then basically it's up to the story to be interesting, but. From what you've told me now and looking at that, that baby covered in blood at the end of issue two, I'm probably going to like what's going on in here. And I just want to credit Mark Englert as the colorist as well, because I think it's his colors along with Brown's pencils that really make this book pop. And I'm going to credit Phil Esposito's great-great-grandson, Taylor Esposito, for lettering. I don't know if they're related, but, you know, it's an Esposito. They're all related. Oh, man, you had me excited for that. <laughs> Like, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. <laughs> no, it's that's the thing. It's it's a well-crafted book, and I'm still trying to figure out like why it hasn't hooked me. Because I, like I said, I was talking like Ozark's crazy theory. You know, all the other crazy theory, uh, crazy theory shows that I watch. Like, I watch a lot of stuff on Netflix, and I was like, what is it about this book that's not like? hooking me on and i'm like am i broken like what's going on here well at the end of the day if you're not into what it is in its basic concepts it's all going to be subjective that it's very at its very core like if i don't really care about fantasy stuff but you combine fantasy with something else i like then i might be more intrigued to continue reading it but it, it's very rare that i pick up a book that is lord of the rings or game of thrones-esque so maybe if you're recommended baby teeth and you appreciate that it's good art and the story is enough to get you to read three issues. But if, at the end of the day, if you don't really care about horror at all or any, I know that's not true, but if you at the, say you didn't care about any horror, or no, you don't like horror. I don't like horror, but I do like Angels and Demons. I mean, okay. I am I am watching the Troll. The movie with Tom Hanks. Yes, I'm watching Troll Hunters right now, and there's <laughs> demons on another side of the world trying to get us. Uh, but, but and you have a child, you have a young daughter, you have a toddler. So I would feel that the the plight of this young mother looking out for her baby, even though he's the Antichrist, like I feel like that taps into something that you feel. I'm sure you feel like this feeling that you would defend Alice no matter what. Yeah, but that's the thing is this character hasn't done that yet, and she's not. There's no redeeming quality in the teenage daughter yet at this point in time. She hasn't fought anybody off. She hasn't defended anybody. She hasn't been like ostracized because she has a demon child. There's been she has she's had no angst so far. It's just it's just the generic it's just the generic everyday thing. Like this is what my wife went through raising a kid. Like it's very verbatim of what my wife has gone through. Where I was reading it, I was like, oh, when we talked to Donnie. Later on in the week, I'm going to ask him, like, do you have a daughter? Do you have a wife? Like, how much research did you actually go into this, like, maternity aspect where women feel really insecure? Like, where were your influences coming from on that? Because it, it's it's pretty much what my wife went through. And, and like I said, it's a well-written book, and it's a well-illustrated book, but I'm just trying to figure out where the disconnect is. Well, you just tapped into it, though. See, he, he he hit a chord where you can recognize things going on in there. I think that Sadie, the mother of the Antichrist, 
I think just even little things that she's done day to day speaks volumes about her character. She finds out that her baby drinks blood instead of milk, and instead of freaking out, she just accepts this is my this is my son. I I love him and I accept. No, him but there isn't there isn't there isn't that conversation. She is very she's been very monotone the whole entire book. The three but that issues says so much about her. Is yeah, that, that no she's matter crazy. What, this is her. This is her child. She's no, dedicated no, no. And She's loving. not old enough to realize. Okay, this is my. I have to fight, flight or flight, or defend my child. It's a very mon. It's written very monotone to where she's like, "Yeah, I think my baby's the Antichrist." It's very, it's very Juno esque. Where like, you know, you got to take it serious to some point in time. I mean, like, it's, well, I think that's also the simplicity of youth. I mean, she's not a child. She's sixteen years old, but. It's also a, a much simpler mindset that someone that's in, in their mid to late twenties or thirties or forties who have experienced a lot more. You know, I I, I think that it, it kind of I think it fits well with who she is. Okay, I I just think that she comes off crazy. She just comes off crazy. Hi, right, so we're gonna have to come to a point in time where we actually give this book a grade, and I think the book is well written. The artwork is really solid. I am it in a lettering phase right now and I enjoyed all the lettering and, and the little aspects of everything that went on with the book. I It's a solid book for me. I'm giving it like a four robots out of five. I just, there's a disconnect with me personally. I, I'm going way higher. No, I'm not, not way higher. I'm going like 4.75. I, I love this book. It has me gripped. It has me month after month. It's like top of my pull list kind of stuff where when it, I can't wait for it to come out, and when it does come out, it's the first thing I'm reading. The the day I'm buying my comics, I'm not waiting to Thursday to read a new issue of Baby Teeth. And, and like you said, it fires on all cylinders. The lettering is great. The coloring is great. Again, it's it's like we talked about a few weeks ago with Redlands. It's a kind of book where you can give it to someone to show them the power of each independent facet of comic book making. And to me, it's the characters. I love characters. I love character-driven stories. There's a lot of action and a lot of... No, there isn't. Don't say there's action in this book. There's like oh, no it action is, this It is building. It's building. <laughs> there is There's no one raccoon, demon raccoon butthole, and there is zero action. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. But, but that's the thing to me is that you're saying it's a slow burn. And until you said that, it didn't occur like that to me because I was gripped and it's a fast read for me. And until you pointed out that, like, quote unquote, nothing has happened. It, it honestly hadn't really occurred to me. The book Maybe is the book is a fast the book is a fast read. I'll give you that. I read three issues really fast. Nothing happened. And now that you say it, I realize, but it, but it, but I wasn't <laughs> conscious of it because I was so I was so enthralled by just like the conversation around the kitchen table that Sadie was having with her sister that it didn't occur to me that nothing was really happening. No, I would read um, I would read three issues and buy three issues of Sadie's sister. Like I would read like her character. I think is completely engaging and i could like see more of her just batshit crazy teenage kick-ass daughter yeah kick-ass daughter drug dealer beating the shit out of people like i she's entertaining but i like crazy girls i mean that's my own fault right there i mean like that's what i like we'll have to we'll have to check back in when issue four comes out and see uh see if you can put your finger on on that je ne sais quoi Hey, uh, we we brought this third guy on to talk about Marvel Comics. Should we should we let him? I think we should. I think uh, I think he he he's earned it. Hi, right, this is All your right. five minutes to shine, sir. All right. So you want to talk? We're talking about resurrection, correct? Yeah. 
What is resurrection, Brandon? Tell us. So, resurrection is basically, to put it briefly... Wait a second, is... wait a second. Sorry, don't mean to cut you off. I just need one thing answered. Is Cyclops yeah. good or bad? Cyclops is dead, so it's irrelevant. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> All right, you can go back to tell us what's going on. He was the people's hero, though. Like The Rock? I mean, he was the people's choice? The people's hero? He's my choice, always. There you go. And he was right. I should be wearing my Cyclops was right shirt. Do you have one of those? No, I have the Magneto one. I've been looking for a Magneto one. I have not been able to find one. Do you not have Amazon? I mean, like, do you not have the internet? Don't get the one from Amazon. It fits like a girl's shirt around the collar. That's what I'm saying. Like, but there's Anthony a lot of knockoff ones. Is like has the physique of a girl. I'm going to the gym, okay? I'm working on it. <laughs> All right, resurrection. All right, so X-Men Resurrection is the X-Men comics line. It's basically Marvel's response to a f to the lackluster era of of X-Men comics in the downward spiral. Um, it's basically a response to the poor response that the fans were giving Marvel about X-Men comics. Okay, when do when do you think that X-Men comics went downhill? I think they kind of went downhill around a little, like a year or so after like Messiah War. Because things just kept getting darker and darker, and once they were like kicked, once the the X Men were removed from Utopia, things just got. They went from like I don't know. They they weren't connecting. There was nothing that was really reminding you of what the X Men were anymore. It was just Cyclops was unrecognizable, basically. Jubilee had the whole thing with becoming a vampire. There was just a lot of things going on that weren't really fun mutant stories. That was no longer being about being the feared and hated minority of the superhero community. It was all about survival, and it was just, it outwore its welcome as a concept. As we kind of mentioned in our previous segment, it, it kind of disrespected the history of these characters, it sounds like. Yeah. But your time frame actually works with the same time that Disney bought Marvel, and Inhumans went more to the forefront of the mutant agenda, and X-Men went down. So it, it, it's interesting. I mean... I'm hoping that the X-Men don't go to the way of the Fantastic Four, but it's it well, sucks. Well, no, they won't, because the, the X-Men movies make money. Oh, a few dollars? <laughs> yeah, some dollars. But will they no, now that yeah, Hugh Jackman is thing, gone? That was, a, that was a major element, was that Marvel, because they didn't have the rights and everything, it's all hearsay and everything, but the, the focus of the X-Men, they were kind of put on the back burner. You know, They didn't have any major titles, really, and they were trying to push their inhuman agenda and make them be the new X-Men with the new team and the new humans and the young kids in school learning to be the weird outcasts and everything. So that rubbed all fans of X-Men the wrong way, but Resurrection was... Their, their mission statement behind it was to turn things around for the entire line of X-Men books and to put things back the way they were. More colorful teams, more characters that you love being together and getting back to being the feared and hated mutants of the 616 Marvel Universe and no longer being the 197 of them that were left fighting to survive in their dwindling numbers. So it's DC Rebirth or Marvel Legacy, but just in the X-Men Section. It was their 1.0. It was their trial run for Marvel Legacy just doing yeah. X-Men books. I love that the X-Men are like their own little universe within the Marvel Universe where Marvel can do like the big legacy event and then X-Men have their own little mini legacy event going but on. But it's always been like that. It's always yeah. been like that. Like I read X-Men books in the 80s and 90s 
And I never felt like they were anywhere near the Avengers or Iron Man, Captain America, and like the Spider-Man universe. It was well, you can blame Chris Claremont for that. Oh yeah, because back when Claremont was writing everything, he was literally writing everything. It was X-Men, X-Factor, everything that involved X-Men. Would there were so many titles, and they all felt like they were self-contained and he was writing all of it so it all felt had the same feel to it all so x-men have kind of always operated on their own that's why it used to be when something like civil war would go down and the x-men would get involved you're like oh shit this is serious if the x-men are coming out of their cave basically their mansion to address what tony stark and the other douchebags are doing yeah it's been it's been always an interesting story with the x-men the x-men you know because the x-men came out you know issue one with the original team and it kind of did what it did, but then it became like reprints, and then they relaunched it. Like the the whole history of X Men is just a bizarre timeline, you know. Because then they had the giant X Men, which they brought in like the modern day X Men. Are we? Is, are they the modern day X Men? Is there a new modern day X Men now? No, I guess it's always referred to like that giant X Men issue where they're busting out. That's always referred to. Yeah, as like wave two of the X-Men, that's always, if you ask any diehard long-term X-Men fan, that's the, the basically the best place to start with the characters. Right, because I feel like that's where they kind of more embrace more of a diversity issue yeah. there, um, and then just kind of just expand and go crazy after that. And so the X-Men have always had a, a turbulent timeline with, you know, people dying, people coming back, all that crazy stuff, and then... Once you introduce like cable and timelines or Days of Future Past, like shit just gets wonky really quick. And you can. Yeah, once cable and Bishop all come into prominence around the late 80s and 90s and everything, that's when it gets pretty complicated to explain to someone who isn't up to date on X Men comics. Right. No, if you're not up to date with X Men comics, like when I owned a comic store, somebody's like, hey, I used to like the X Men. I was like, when did you stop reading? It's like, eh, around like 91, 92. I was like, hey, here's this astonishing X Men comic book. Here's the trade. <laughs> Read that. That'll get you back in that'll get you back into the X Men universe. And then if you want to like expand from there, then I'll give you forty two trades to read after that. But if you if you get through <laughs> Astonishing X Men, that's a good start. So we read the newest Astonishing X Men and we thought it was okay. I didn't think it was anything groundbreaking or anything like that. What X Men titles are standing out for you right now? Well, because you guys did talk about Astonishing X Men already. Um, if you're only going to read two titles outside of the, the two flagship titles being Blue and Gold, if you're only going to pay attention to two Resurrection titles, make them Jean Grey and Old Man Logan. So Jean Grey is written by Dennis Hopeless uh, with art by Anthony Piper and color by J. David Ramos. So I have to get all X-Men fan on you. So to give you the premise of the, the Jean Grey book, you have to understand that the there are time displaced. The original X-Men teens are time displaced and they're in the modern universe because Cyclops is dead and everyone lost their way. So this book by Dennis Hopeless is about the teenage Jean Grey, who is the original X-Men, who is up in modern timeline now. Um, and this is the story of her... Um, it's five issues in. It's the stories, of, the story of her knowing that the Phoenix Force basically is coming for her. She knows what happened to the older Jean Grey that we all knew and loved for years. And she's trying to prepare herself for the incoming Phoenix Force because it basically called her out. So in the five issues so far, she's gone to the former Phoenix hosts, you know, Rachel Grey, uh, Kid Omega, everyone that's had it, basically. Um, and she's trying to prepare herself and... She goes from there to Namor, and then 
from there she goes and has a, a a night out with with Odin's son, and there she learns some new techniques to fight, and it's it's interesting. It's the first time in a long time that Jean Grey has been a really interesting and intriguing character because she's she's back to being a, a hopeless kid, and she's trying to rewrite her own her own path, basically seeing given the chance to see how destructive it ends up being. And Dennis Hopeless just basically did a 180 on Jean Grey, and she's just. I always kind of found her to be, after a while, you know, kind of like a bland, very dull character after a while, Jean Grey. Okay, back up one um, second. What happened yeah. to Hope? Wasn't she Hope, Jean Grey? She she was also a Phoenix host at one point. Because she, she came is, back as a child. And she came back as a baby, and that's who Cable had as a baby. And everybody thought that was going to be the new Jean Grey. So she never became Jean Grey? No, she continued to be Hope. She went back to the future with Cable and then came back as, like, a teenager. And then was with the X-Men for a while, like, through uh, AVX and Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men. That was a good run. I like Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men. Yeah, that was the best. He's he's really good. Hey, if any X-Men book written by Jason Aaron, just read it, because Jason Aaron's really good. Uh, okay, so we this is, this is the problem with the world of comic books that we live in now like Jean Grey died like before Astonishing X-Men right yeah she was dead because yeah. Cyclops was yeah that was already out. yeah my girl Emma Emma had already stepped in when Joss Whedon's aside right so she's started. been dead for 20 20 years now 15 something like that yeah she's like the longest standing dead X-Men who okay. hasn't been resurrected since okay and so then they bring the 15 year old version of her to present day which is, well, they bring the whole team of the present day. Right. Yeah. To, so now you like you, you replace Cy- the, so you replace Cyclops and then Iceman came out of the closet and then yeah. and Beast isn't Harry anymore. Nope. And now he's messing with Mystic stuff. Oh. Yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I don't really appreciate that. But other than his little magic fetish he's got going on right now, that's. Gene and the the younger X Men team in blue have been good, but Gene the solo book with Gene it's it's a different take on the character because she's giving being not only is she being given a second chance to lead a different life but Dennis Hopeless is giving the character Gene a second chance to be a more interesting and well rounded character like she's even got the leadership role of the X Men blue team. Yeah, so because this, she's always been kind of like a sidebar to Cyclops. You know, whether it be in the cartoons or comic books, you know, in the 90s, it was always like, oh, what, what's going on with Jean? Like, she always seemed to be like the manic depressive in the corner of like, oh, don't get Jean upset because she'll start crying and then blow a Phoenix out of her butt. And like, you know, that was like the running joke and stuff like that. Yeah. And then she always became like the scapegoat. She always had some issue going on that took her out of the battle until the very last second. And then, oh, yeah, I forgot. She's the most powerful psychic other than Xavier. I feel like a lot of people have also just kind of deemed her as boring like she she's overpowered and and when does this new book at all add any like depth to her that she's not just some yeah, that's like, exactly what the 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 biggest point that I make by recommending Jean Grey like the biggest success of the book is making Jean way more interesting. She's got a lot more personality. She's a lot the book is just she's a lot of fun. She's sarcastic. She's a teenager. She's um, not so one note. Yeah, exactly. She's a lot more. She's got a lot more going on. She's a much lo- more layered character. 
And she's young without the Phoenix Force, so the whole overpowered argument is out the window with this one. Exactly. And she's along the way learning, like, the issue with Thor. She learned how to generate, like, psionic weaponry like um, Quentin Quire does. So she's actually learning new things along the way, knowing that, you know, the Phoenix Force it w- is inevitably going to ruin her life, basically. Hi, Brandon. Give us your 30-second sales pitch on Old Man Logan. All right, Old Man Logan, whether or not you read the, the Millar book from before, if you're going to read anything about this era of X-Men comics, about Wolverine, knowing that our Logan, our age Logan is dead, the old man is here, this has been the best book. It's 27 issues in the, the Lemire and Sorrentino run, ended a few issues back, this current arc. It is Old Man Logan revisiting, or being revisited by the Wasteland Hulk inbred family led by maestro and uh with art by mike diodato and the writer is ed brisson and it's been a brilliant passing of the torch from the lemire team to the brisson team so you prefer this brisson arc to lemire's run not necessarily but i think it's a good progression i think there are two different monsters basically like lemire's kind of ended up it ended really nicely i liked from beginning to end lemire was doing a different thing now brisson is dipping back into the wasteland stuff and everything that Millar originally did and taking that from a different angle, having it happen in the 616 universe. But the thing that's best about the Old Man Logan book for both of them is that having Old Man Logan on like the other Wolf, on the other um, X-Men teams, it's basically just a stand-in for Wolverine. On this Old Man Logan book, you actually get grumpy Old Man Logan. It actually feels like it is an old man Wolverine and not just Wolverine who looks like he has gray hair. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I, I, I still Wolverine's not dead. He's just frozen in, in carbonite with Han Solo. He'll come back. <laughs> Hi, Brandon. This has been an amazing time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for letting me mumble and babble for uh, a half hour. You know, Anthony's really good at editing those out. So you'll sound really intelligent this episode. I'm a- I'm going to make you sound good, bro. <laughs> You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. Oh, you guys don't probably get those Zales commercials. Never mind. Yes, we get the Zales commercials. All right, good. That wasn't a Zales commercial. I thought that was the, the men's warehouse. You're going to like the way you look. That no, one, too. That was Diamond in his beard. Diamond beard? Is that a new comic book? Yeah. It should be. <laughs> Is it abstract enough? No, you need a third caricature. Maybe it's a ginger, a ginger, no, ginger beard diamond, ginger beard <laughs> diamond go. with a demon raccoon. There you go. <laughs> Perfect. Hi, Anthony. Uh, I'll talk to you next week as well. All right, buddy. Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at all our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. My co-host, Anthony, is also on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio. If you have a chance, we'd greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes. As always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website, monkeysfightingrobots.com. Well, that was fun. Who's for Chinese? There are so many people that made the ninth episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots success. Special shout out to my co-host, Anthony Composto! Valar Magules. Gonna go watch some Game of Thrones. Jessica Wynn designed the Monkeys Fighting Robots logo. Are you a monkey or are you a robot? 
The staff of Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up running. To all my friends, family, and interweb, thank you very much for your support. I'm Matt Sardo, and this is Monkeys Fighting Robots.